season one, episode two. The first cut is the deepest. Little, little uh, Bob Dylan reference, right? Didn't Bob Dylan write that song originally. Oh, I as, was <laughs> as redone by Cheryl Crow. <laughs> That's one I was thinking about. <laughs> oh. Yet another stay instance. Real quiet. <laughs> I do love that version. It's yeah, well, breaker. that's that's the version that's gonna end up as an audio bite. So, <laughs> okay, so uh, a quick a quick summary. You're gonna be timing this, right? Okay. I've got thirty. Okay, seconds. I'll t- I'll tell you when to go. We're gonna we're doing a thirty second summaries. I watched this like a t- two weeks ago. So okay, here we go. Hold on, Great. hold on, hold on, hold on. I wanted to cheat the system. No, you can't cheat the fucking system. All right, ready, set, go. Okay, so in this second episode of the first season, Meredith is looking for roommates. Uh, Kerev is reassigned to our core group of interns. Um, Burke is upset because he might not be chief. And uh, Meredith and Derek pick back up where they started with a little kiss. Five seconds. And Yang is great and rides a motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. You didn't talk about the baby at all. (laughs) There was a baby. Or about Izzy and the undocumented (laughs) workers. Which baby? Really glad you got that bit about the motorcycle in there, though. (laughs) That is my first first note about this, is that she's riding a motorcycle. (laughs) Which I'm pretty sure we never see again, but I'm okay with that. (laughs) Never even, like, alluded to again. (laughs) Uh, All right. So... Good, great. I think that was good work. <laughs> it's a good first try right there. <laughs> Our last episode, we, we kind of talked a lot about the secondary interns. We got to about an hour and 15 minutes <laughs> and realized we needed to talk about the main characters, namely the Grey of Grey's Anatomy at some point. Oh, her? that's where we're going to start today. Oh, that that girl. What, what are your... like? What did you think of Meredith? These first two episodes. Now we have two episodes with her. Um, you know, I think she's a little hard to like at the beginning. And I know that there's a lot of people who, um, we talked a little bit about this last time, a lot of people who really don't like Meredith um, and don't for, because because the sort of audience surrogate thing. But she, I think that you had in your notes about her, her uh, monologue of that being like a litmus test of whether or not people will like the show. I think my basic point about Meredith came up in this episode, actually. So we're dealing with the aftermath of um, a, a t- an attempted rape in a park here in Seattle. And Meredith, in the very beginning of the episode, we see Meredith put her uh, s- sort of leopard print flats into her locker. And we meet this uh, victim of this brutal assault, and she's wearing the same shoes that Meredith wore to work. And my kind of hypothesis is that Meredith's eventual monologue regarding those shoes um, is a litmus test for whether you're going <clears> to <throat> like this show, number one, <laughs> and whether you're going to like Meredith Grey specifically, number two. Because it's a mm-hmm. self-referential monologue where she's really... I mean, she's literally explicitly putting herself into the shoes of her patient. Yeah. And in a way where, as an audience, it's really easy for you to be like, wow, you're a first-time surgical intern struggling a little bit with work and your mom and a relationship with your boss. And this woman is clinging to life after a yeah. brutal assault. Yes. You know, so, yes. so if you find, if you find that monologue with the shoes, which, which we'll play a little bit here. Um, if you find that endearing, then I think you're probably going to find Meredith to be an endearing or sympathetic character. If you find it insufferable, I think that's going to inform how you feel about the next 11 seasons. <laughs> <laughs> and and about her. Yeah. The rape victim, Allison, her shoes. I have the same ones in my locker, and I normally never wear them because they're not comfortable. But today I did. And she was wearing the same shoes, and it's just... 
stupid and I'm tired. In that in that scene when she does freak out about the shoes, it's literally moments before she and Derek are in the are in the elevator. Just before he turns around and they start making out in the elevator, which is the first elevator makeout scene. Um, she accuses Derek of sexually harassing her. And she's like, you're sexually harassing me in the workplace. And he's like, no, I'm not, you know, I'm just riding an elevator. And, and then she, this is directly after she's freaking out about this rape victim, right. About these shoes. Um, and it's just a really, I don't know. I think that one thing that Shonda Rhimes, one of the many things that she does so effectively is, is just these like, incredibly contrasting moments um, that just fight against each other so hard and make you as an audience member like so, so uncomfortable. And she really uses that effectively, I think, and particularly yeah. in that scene. And Meredith is just sort of ripe for that all yes. the time. <laughs> so, so ripe for it. I think, I think that's totally conscious mm -hmm. on the part of the writers and on the part of Shonda that she wants to give us a, a pretty flawed protagonist. Not just that she's yeah. flawed in the sense that her you know, her relationships and her life are messy, but in the fact that she is a flawed, like selfish, not always good person. <laughs> uh, and Shonda wants to, I think, have that be okay. And I think that that's effective because we don't see a whole lot of like genuinely flawed. We see a lot of sort of false flaws on TV and in movies and things like that. Um, do you remember when you first started watching in college if you liked or did not like Meredith? I didn't. Oh you my didn't? god, yeah. I didn't like Meredith. I sort at of remember all. that and about you that you really didn't like yes. her at the beginning. I I found her monologues just just so so obnoxious and they, you know, always put like a fine point on things that I felt the episode yes. <laughs> pretty much already put a fine point on. I was like, thanks, I didn't really need the training wheels here. <laughs> um, and it's so interesting because it's like literally at a certain age, like 25, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I started rewatching, you know, Grays for the 15th time uh -huh. at the age of 25, and it was like a switch flipped in my head. And I suddenly really got Meredith do you think it, she made sense to me in a way that she just never did yeah. when I was in college do you think that that I mean has anything to do with it in the first season she's like 25 27 ish yeah that, like, yeah I think, I think that what that's what's interesting to me about rewatching. I more frequently watch rewatch sort of the middle late middle seasons those are usually when I start I sometimes start at the beginning but every once in a while I'll start at like season five or something like that but I think that that's what's so striking to me now as somebody in my late 20s starting at the beginning is is how how strongly I identify with her and with all of the interns frankly um not not with them except as for George right except for George but like <laughs> even that scene in this in this particular episode where they're all sitting in the uh in the hallway in the basement and they're talking about how nobody knows what the hell they're doing and I, and I, I, that's, I just remember so feeling that way, you know, when I was 25 of just like, what, what is, what am I doing with my life? You know, there's sort of this expectation that you have done enough by that time in your life that you know what you're doing, but just this sort of deep, deep seated feeling that you have no fucking idea. <laughs> yes. And I think there's something to be said too about when you're sort of you're out of college so you're out of the safety bubble yeah you know where you have a structure yeah that's predetermined around your friends and your mentors and your work and then you're out of that and you're in the real world and it I feel like it really hits you around 25 and it suddenly made so much more sense to me that Meredith's Meredith's only reference point for her life is herself yes it's the <laughs> only thing she really knows yeah. and can cling to. Yeah. So of course she's going to take all of these foreign frustrating situations and somehow figure out ways to relate them back to herself. Right. Is that charming all the time? No. Yeah. Is it super realistic in a survivalist sense? Absolutely. Yeah. It's clearly was not geared toward 15 to 19 year olds, which is how <laughs> old we were when we started watching it, right. you know. And I think that that's I don't know. That's just sort of an interesting thing. And I, I don't know. And she's she grows up. Let's talk about Yang a little bit. Oh, my God. A little <laughs> bit or forever. Can we have a separate spinoff <laughs> podcast where I just talk about my feelings for Sandra Oh and her perfect teardrop face and the one time she plays a lesbian in the film Under the Tuscan Sun, which is every not time, about her. Every time we talk about this, Under I the Tuscan know. Sun comes up. <laughs> I don't even know what the plot of that film is. All I know is that 
Yang, Christina Yang, is impregnated with Addison Montgomery's baby. Really? It's her? <laughs> they're together in that show? <laughs> yep. Oh my God. Yep. And they're in Tuscany together. Something else happens with a white lady. But Susan the Sarandon. Key part. <laughs> Not so, Susan Sarandon, it? dude. Really? No, no, dude. It's Diane Lane. Oh, Diane Lane. Oh, <laughs> the other white lady. So I think we know where I stand on Christina Yang. <laughs> You're just like, what are your she's feelings? She's like a medium on Christina Yang. That's what I'm picking up over here. <laughs> she's like, she's okay. <laughs> she's great. I mean, she is such a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful character, and she is unapologetically wonderful. I think that that's something that I just adore about her is that she takes her work so seriously and she takes herself so seriously um and and completely completely pulls it off in a way like I just think that Sandra Oh is such a wonderful wonderful actress um and this and Christina Yang her character there's just to me there's just no one else like her on tv you know there's just she's just a character that is so unique um and is so, so authentic that I think it's just, she just brings something to the show that, uh, just something so, so fierce about her. It's yeah. just so great. She's, she's an all-star from an acting perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, her expressions mm. are priceless. All the time, mm-hmm. her expressions are priceless. Like, her face has the most perfect comedic timing of anyone on oh. the show. It really does. It's it's just great. I described her face as a symphony at some point in my notes, <laughs> and I my notes are pretty effusive about, about Sandra Oh, uh, who rightfully was nominated for like five Emmys yeah. or something over the course of her of her time on the show. Um, I I think watching watching the first two episodes back, I was surprised at how relatively quiet she is to start yes. the season. She actually. I think because Shonda pretty clearly wants to establish Meredith as as our character. Right. So Meredith does almost all of the heavy lifting in these first two episodes. She does. And Yang doesn't do a ton, which it's like I didn't remember that because she's such an eventual badass. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she is truly a supporting actress in these first two. Like, she is absolutely supporting our protagonist you know, in a lot of different ways. And I think that we should also talk a little bit about their, their friendship that starts off so early on in this, in the show, just from, we didn't talk a whole lot about it in the pilot. Um, but there is this great bonding moment between the two of them. They, I mean, their friendship is just so anybody who is a female and has strong female friendships will get something out of this, this friendship in like a deep, deep, deep way. And if you don't, then like you're hollow inside. (laughs) And that's just like an inherent belief that I have and you will not convince me otherwise. Um, And we'll, we'll sort of dissect that as we go through these, but in in the pilot, there's this really great moment between the two of them. um, And, and she tells Yang that she has slept with Shepard and she tells Yang like, you can't respond, you know, you can't, you cannot react to this. And she tells her and they're, they're trying to figure out the, the Katie Bryce issue at the time. Which side note, who hasn't said that with their best right. friend? Like, I'm going to tell you this thing and you cannot say anything about it. You cannot react, you cannot respond, yeah. you cannot even breathe <laughs> when I tell you. And I think that that's what's so, and that's the moment they become friends, right? Like they go from like colleagues and, you know, research, they're researching together. They're sitting um, in the library together, I think. And, and it's the moment that you see this friendship form. And I think that that's wonderful. And I think that that speaks to so many females and female friendships, because that's often how like girl friendships, female friendships form is through like the exchange of personal information. You know, like I'm going to tell a thing that I need to tell somebody and I have no friends. So I'm going to tell <laughs> this like closest person. It's you. Me. Congrats. <laughs> exactly. You're here. <laughs> exactly. And then in the second episode and the one that we're talking about this week, she tells Yang that she kissed Derek again. And Yang is like, oh, oh, you kissed Derek. And he's like, and she's like, well, I was having a bad day. And she's like, oh, you have a bad day. So you kissed Derek in the elevator. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and she's like teasing her about it. And I yes. think that it's so genuine. Like, it's so, so genuine. It's just like you said, like, how many times have we been teased by our girlfriends for like doing something sexually stupid <laughs> or anything <laughs> stupid you know I just think it's such a great it's it's so so believable um and I just think that the, the friendship between the two of them is probably no not probably is absolutely my favorite part about this show um yeah. and the way that they their relationship develops is 
I think, more important than any other relationship in the show. And it brings so much to them as individuals in the yeah. show in just such a wonderful way. Yeah, I I think they they just have I said this in our last episode, but I think they have just an incredible chemistry together. They are friends outside of the show, which mm-hmm. I just find so charming <laughs> and lovely and perfect. Yes. <laughs> and you're you're totally right that that scene in the library cements the friendship. That is really the first conversation between two friends. And what I like is that it's an intimate enough conversation that when the episode ends with some friction over yes. competition, yes. Um, over who gets the surgery with Derek, it's still, I mean, it's totally survivable conflict. Yeah. It's so realistic to me that they would share this bond, create this bond, get into a little bit of a tiff, hurt each other's feelings, and then just come back from it and be like, well... That sucked. Right. Do you want to have tequila? Or, you know, and, you know, and then that moment where they say, like, anything. we don't have to hug and kiss and, like, make up about it, right? And she's like, ugh, no. Like, I just <laughs> yeah, we don't that. have to do that thing where you say th- something yeah, yeah, and I yeah. say something. Which I will say that, like, that's something that when I started watching this show as a teenager, I was like, wow, I couldn't ever imagine having that kind of, like, getting over something so easily, you know? Yeah. And I think that now that I'm an adult you can sort of see that, right? Like that's such a, that's a moment where you're like, wow, you are in your late twenties. You know, that's, yeah. that's like, you have learned how to deal with conflict. Yes. And you're desperate and alone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to let go of this one human you've formed a relationship with. Who's not your boss. So true. <laughs> Speaking of the boss, we should, we should talk about Derek. There's a war inside of me Do I cause a new heartbreak to rise? A new broken song Do I push it down Or let it run me right Season one Derek for me is so He's so effortlessly charming Oh my god Holy shit Is he a charming devil It's... <laughs> It's, it is almost difficult to watch. Yes. You know, when I watch him do the things that he does and even, even when he's with Meredith, but also just the way he talks to anybody. Yeah. You know, he's just insatiable. Yeah. Yeah. His eyes actually sparkle. Yeah. He has a way of listening to someone and making, and making it look as though that's the only person in the entire world, whether it's a patient, whether it's Meredith whether it's a, a, a fellow doctor, yeah. I mean, his interpersonal skills should be illegal. Like, that's... True, truly. <laughs> like, in a different show, Derek Shepard is a cult leader. Like, Meredith never had a chance. No. Let's just make that very oh, clear from God, the beginning. No. <laughs> like... <laughs> I mean, what do we do with this relationship? We're two episodes in. I... I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, Derek, I'm talking uh-huh. about here, because they slept together before they knew, you know, like, that's kind of unfair. They slept together yeah. before they knew they were work colleagues and that Derek yeah. was going to be the boss. It right. was clearly great sex. Oh, God. It was definitely for Derek more than just sex. I think yeah. we get that sense even in the immediate aftermath in the first episode yes by the way he looks at her and kind of holds onto her hand when they're introducing yeah stupid sparkle eyes and hair (laughs) so so how you know how do we judge what happens next well i think that that's actually pretty interesting right because i think that it is that's not something we see a lot of unfortunately in hollywood of the guy having an emotional investment and the girl being like okay bye get out of my house like when i get out of the shower you won't be here Um, and and I think that that's, I, first of all, love that. And I know that we talked a little bit about that last time, but I, it's so when you, I don't know, I do want to give him the benefit of the doubt because he's so fucking charming and wonderful. And like the way he looks at her is so magical. But now that I am an adult, like sleeping with your boss, I, I'm just like, it's so hard to think about, I, I think that they really underplay how 
wrong that is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that that's on purpose and I think that that's okay. Um, but I think that that's a moment where it, it is incredibly fictitious that there's like, I, I think that that's, that's underplayed in the show, just how inappropriate that truly is, you know, and, and Meredith yeah. sort of speaks to it and she says like, you're my boss. And he's like, I'm your boss's boss. And it's like, yeah, you are. <laughs> that's really fucking wrong. Not to mention that like, it's obviously assumed and, and not that this, this doesn't matter because they're adults, but like, he's at least 10 years older than her. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, which I do think is fascinating. Um, that, only now in present day show is she really the age that he probably was when they first started dating. So, which I just think is interesting. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's inappropriate, but like, I don't care. (laughs) I guess it's my thesis. You know, (laughs) It's inappropriate and I ship it. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess the second question is like, do you think it's believable? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw that in your notes and I, I was like, ah, fuck that's a good question because kind of i don't <laughs> and this okay this is going to sound so terrible and i i just feel i just don't ever want to run into ellen pompeo but i just am like derek is so charismatic <laughs> and so attractive to the point of silliness like the man's a goddamn <laughs> disney prince he really is it's like a cartoonist drew him Uh and then shonda breathed him into life and and meredith gray is she's she has the charisma of (laughs) (laughs) like one of her coding patients like she (laughs) of like an old cat (laughs) you know and and I mean I like that I I like that she's just so clearly she's, dead inside. <laughs> she's so flawed. And and Derek is so bright and shiny and and sparkly. It would make more sense for him to have a relationship with Yang, right? Like they're both super ambitious. They both have a lot of charisma. They mm-hmm. are both sort of evenly attractive. Although, yeah. of course, I think Sandra O oh is far more attractive than Patrick Dempsey, but uh, well, um, I'm going to have to disagree. But my own personal bias. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, so like the 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 Derek Shepard, Meredith Grey, aesthetically, <laughs> their relationship is confusing to me. <laughs> and also personality wise, their relationship is confusing to me. Yeah, I know. And I can't decide if that makes it more or less believable. You know, mm-hmm. like, I think that I could see an argument for either way of saying, like, there's no way that they would be together. Like, they don't mesh physically. They don't mesh personality wise. They don't mesh emotionally. Like, really, you know, <laughs> they don't. Um, but I could also see that as an argument for like, yeah, exactly. You know, that's yeah. the point. It's just when Meredith tries to smile, like when Ellen Pompeo <laughs> smiles, it looks actively painful for her. <laughs> She looks like it's hurting her. <laughs> She's Wednesday Adams grown up. <laughs> her smile is just not great. It's not, it's not it's a like, good It's like, you know what it's like? It's like somebody is like, Meredith, Ellen Pompeo, show me your teeth. Like, that's what somebody is like. It's not, they're not asking you to smile. They're saying like, show me as many teeth as possible. And so she makes the face that allows us to see the most amount of teeth possible. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, oh, no. no oh, okay. You can put them away now, Ellen. Don't. We, we didn't want that after all. Yeah. I, so, so that's a tough one. And I also am not sure that it's believable. So, so aesthetically and like their actual characters, mm-hmm. you know, whatever opposites attract, I guess. But but from like a professional standpoint, I don't know how believable it is. I don't know that this is happening in sort of medical programs around the country that yeah. interns are sleeping with their attendings and the heads of departments. But I hesitate to question that because we look at uh, the you know the actual un- unwarranted, unwanted sexual harassment. Yeah. In STEM, you know, in STEM fields and yes. obviously all fields, but 
STEM particularly, that's been a huge issue. And I'm like, well, I don't, maybe it is kind of believable. Like, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe and I the think least that... believable part is that, is that she wants this, you know, wants this attention and wants to pursue this thing. Whereas right. more believably, he would just be straight up harassing her. Right, right. And she would be like talking to Yang about what do I do? I want to succeed here. I so it? I can't yeah. report him. And it right. would just be a really sad miniseries on HBO. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm glad that's not what we're making a podcast about. <laughs> I am. I am, too. Like, let's never watch, like, The Wire and decide to podcast about it. Oh, Christ. <laughs> Do we want to talk for a minute about Bailey? I would love to talk about Miranda <laughs> fucking Bailey, who I would like to point out. I made a note about this in my notes that she managed to get all of the snacks <laughs> out of this episode without doing any of the favors that were asked of her. And or ever I, asking for any or of the ever at, Yeah. She just like ended up with the mocha. She ended up with the bag of chips. Yep. She ended up with the like three minutes to just yell at Burke. Like, Bailey was a goddamn boss this episode. Yeah. <laughs> she is. Uh, she's so wonderful. I think that her, this show, there's, she wins an Emmy. She won an Emmy in one of the middle seasons or maybe even the later seasons. Um, and she, I think that I forget, what is her name? The actress, uh, Chandra her? Wilson. Thank you. Um, I just think she is so wonderful her her acceptance speech when she wins this award it might be a people's choice award um but she says like something to the effect of if a woman who is my build and my race and with arms and legs like mine can win an emmy like (laughs) and anyone can do it like this is such a gift and such an honor to be here and i just think that like she showed a lot of humility in that speech and i think that i love her character so much because she is another sort of unapologetically awesome character (laughs) yeah um and she's just I don't know I just I just adore her so much yeah I I think she's she's so she's so great I mean problematically named the Nazi by yeah by interns and residents and attendings uh but but it is you know it is funny like it is a a fun visual gag yeah to have the interns walking to the Nazi who turns out to be this short round black woman <laughs> yes who then like promptly hands their asses to them <laughs> uh-huh uh-huh um she's she's great and she she's another one who i forget that she's kind of a slow starter in the sense that most of what we get out of bailey is other people talking about bailey and how scary right. or impressive she is right right and i think the first moment her kind of first moment is in the sun is when she she gets to tell burke you know what's what about his personality and dickishness i think that it's just this wonderful i love that moment when she just 100 percent puts him in his place yeah and that's the first moment, and and that's the first moment that we see that like Bailey is everywhere, knows everything, sees everything, right? And I think that you can maybe sort of guess that about her before that moment, but that's when you sort of realize just how important of a character she is in this hospital. Yeah, you know, and like the way that things are are run, that she's you kind of get the feeling that like she runs the show. Yeah, like nobody ever attributes that to her, and she's at the time is only a, a fellow, maybe yeah. a resident, you know. I, re- I feel like I remember in the first few seasons, people talked about Chandra Wilson and the Bailey character as like the surrogate for Shonda Rhimes. The, yeah, that, yeah. That was yeah. Shonda Rhimes' insertion of herself in the show. And I, I think that. that that sort of evolves. That simple comparison kind of breaks down. Yeah, breaks down eventually. But yeah. I think that's very true of maybe the first four or even five seasons of Grey's Anatomy that she she really is kind of this outlet for what Shonda Rhimes is becoming. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously now she, Shonda Land she has an empire and she has all of these incredible um, women of color leading her shows, uh, right? And being critically lauded and and Grey's has kind of fallen out, kind of fallen out. It's sort of the, right not terribly well-regarded elder statesman of the Shondaland <laughs> right. Empire. Uh, but I think that Shonda, you know, there is no, what's her name, Annalise Keating, 
um, without Miranda Bailey. That's from uh, How to Get Away with Murder. Oh, there okay. is okay. no Olivia something right. or other from Scandal. Scandal. Yep. I don't watch Scandal. Yep. Uh, I was going to say Olivia Benson, but I know yeah. that's not <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you know, those, those, yep. those two women don't exist without Miranda Bailey. Absolutely. Who then, of course, doesn't exist without um, Shonda Rhimes' incredible writing and imagination. Um, yeah. And and casting that she took a chance on this woman. A huge oh, absolutely. chance. Um, all right, what else do we have? We got to talk Burke, man. Oh, we have to talk about Burke. Our biggest question <laughs> early on in these first couple episodes of, of Grey's is, is Burke a misogynist? <laughs> like, is he, or even furthermore, like, is he even likable? <laughs> <laughs> like what do we make of Preston Burke the man right I think we talked a little Twitter bit about poll, should Preston Burke be killed off the show immediately <laughs> right right um and we ta- I guess we talked a little bit about him last time um but I think that I, I just don't know <laughs> I, yeah. I just don't know I just don't know where the line of confidence where confidence ends and cocky misogynistic prick begins those are so blurred yeah yeah i and i think the conversation he has not not with the chief which which we'll get to i love that for so many reasons but his Mm. conversation with derek is so interesting because again it's you have derek bright shiny sparkly derek who knows about this Mm -hmm. competition for chief of surgery and is handling it his way which is like making jokes and let's have a drink and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you have Burke who finds out about the competition for chief of, chief of surgery. And he's so dour and bitter and resentful. And it's, it's hard to just not immediately side with Derek. Yeah. <laughs> and be like, yes. that other dick definitely shouldn't get this position. <laughs> Which Clearly is our hero, Derek <laughs> yes. Shepard should be chief of all. Which is difficult because that's something that, like, we deal with throughout the entire tenure of the show is just feeling like everyone should worship the ground that Derek walks on. And that gets harder and harder to do as his tenure on the show. You don't fall into it, but you do. His, like, trap is so shiny (laughs) and wonderful. (laughs) And Burke is such a fucking baby. Yeah. I'm off at six. You want to get that drink we talked about? I don't think so. What about tomorrow night? Shepard, you should know that Richard promised Chief to both of us. But you knew that already. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. You're not the enemy. You're just the competition. There there are things I like about... So so Isaiah Washington initially auditioned for the role of Derek Shepard. Oh, I didn't know that. That's fascinating to me because I can't. No, I can't he could see never it have done at that. All. Nobody could have done not that. Not have Patrick the Dempsey. effortless charisma. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I I like the role of Preston Burke in that I like this um, inappropriately ambitious black man. I mm-hmm. like that. I yes. think oh, that's yes. cool and exciting. But God damn it, is it hard to root for? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and just the way that he, like, talks down to everyone. Mm-hmm. I think that that's – and that's what's so I, – I totally agree because when you have his counterpart, Derek, who talks down to nobody, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and Isaiah Washington just walks around, Burke walks around with just such an entitlement that is just so deeply unattractive. <laughs> Chief, so you asked Shepard to come to Grace. He's an old student of mine. Oh, well, you left a Manhattan private practice because you asked. Yes. No other reason? Just a favor for an old professor. It'll be years before I retire. Chief of surgery is mine. Chief of surgery is mine. It was yours. Now I'm not so sure. I am the best surgeon at Grace with the lowest mortality rate. You can't just bring some Now ask me why I'm not so sure about you. Ask me what? I do love this is this is sort of a, a larger point about Grey's Anatomy and Shonda's 
shows eventually. But I do like that even by episode two, there are entire scenes that just involve people of color where there's not a white oh, yeah. person in yes. the frame. Um, and again, that's huge. That's kind of a huge thing. Oh, my God. And I think the Burke conversation with um, with Weber, uh, with mm -hmm. Richard Weber, is is such such a great starting point for for the way that the show is going to be yes um, in that they are sitting there talking about this really important power struggle and it's two black men and they are completely in charge of their own futures yes and at the and at the top of the line right yeah. the absolute oh, most yeah. important position at the hospital is these two black men talking about like why they are or are not equipped to do that job yeah um, and I think that's so, so, so valuable. That's such a valuable narrative. Why? You really want to know? I want to know when you stop thinking of me as your number one. Richard, I do more in this hospital than me and the surgeon. You do only exactly as much as is necessary. You never take an extra step. You never give an extra minute. You're comfortable and arrogant, and it doesn't impress me. You want to be chief? Earn it. I don't know that... Burke is a misogynist. I don't think he is. I don't I think so either. I think he's an entitled asshole. Mm -hmm. And I think I think the show wants to humble him. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know. Certainly by episode two, he's he's not remotely humble. He starts out as, as, in, in such a strong place, you know, of like, it's pretty difficult to like have a character grow in a lot of ways. And they start out as like a confident dick that like people <laughs> don't necessarily like, <laughs> you know, and so like his growth has to take an interesting journey. And I don't I don't know that it successfully does that. Yeah. You know, even as his sort of romantic interests develop. But yeah. Yeah, it's much we'll easier to take a character like Karev, who's starting from the bottom in right. a pompous dick. Like, there's right. clearly growth because there's professional growth, right? right? Like, he's right. either going to develop into a surgeon or he's not. Whereas with Preston Burke, we already have this ready-made god of surgery right. who also has a terrible personality. So right, like, and what? you're like, okay, so you got to where you are professionally because of your dickish personality. Right. And that's pretty difficult to like. Yeah, yeah. He um, is sort of a stunning specimen, though. Like, oh, he is a very attractive person. He is an extremely attractive person. And there's something about the way he enunciates, like, something oh, about God. the way he pronounces words that, like, sends a shiver up my spine. Yeah, his diction is it's, just incredible. Whew. Yeah. Whew. Hey, Isaiah. <laughs> yeah. And his name is Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah. Isaiah Washington. That man could not be more distinguished. <laughs> That's really very true. <laughs> So we should we should start with um, the best song usage. I think we should do that right away. Yeah, I think we yeah. agree on it. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> should we do one, two, three? <laughs> well, now I don't know which. I know. I know. Now I'm gonna be like, Keen, and you're gonna be like, Tia, and at the very start, it's gonna sound like we said the same thing, and then you're gonna keep going with mm, Sarah. <sighs> <laughs> Uh, my Our listeners should know that we do really love both Keen and Tegan and Sarah. <laughs> yeah. And Tegan and Sarah is probably a more widely respected and loved group <laughs> than Keen. <laughs> okay, just because you went to rehab and never came back. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is like the Sophie's Choice for, yeah. for us when it comes to music, which Sophie's Choice is on Netflix. This is a tangent. But <laughs> Sophie's Choice, the actual movie with Meryl Streep, uh -huh. is on Netflix. And I was, I was over at a friend's house. We were trying to watch we wanted to pick a movie to watch and we came across Sophie's Choice and I was like god I just really obnoxiously have ruined that movie for myself because I say that <laughs> everything is a Sophie's Choice like I'm in the Chipotle line and I'm like uh do I want a burrito bowl or do I want the actual burrito this is a real Sophie's Choice <laughs> I really, truly overuse that, <laughs> that expression. And because I also have never seen the movie before. <laughs> I haven't either. And now I never could because I would think of all of my absurd Sophie's choices. <laughs> yes. Chicken or steak? What will it be?
that tangent aside, my pick is Keen. It's a good song. Some It's Somewhere Only We Know by Keen. It's such a good song. It's a throwback. It's not widely heard or loved, but it is a truly, truly wonderful song. Um, and I like the way that they use it. I think that, I mean, it's a good overall. I mean, there's other great songs in the show. They do um, the song Wait by Go Set Go, which actually comes back in the musical episode later on in the show, which is great. Um, and uh, Sister Kate, which is fun when they're like running around doing the crash cart or the uh, when they're breaking the news um but we see a lot of tegan and sarah and we don't see a whole lot of keen so it goes to keen Death toll? Mm, yes, death toll. Oh we boy. each had separate death tolls. Why don't you share what your death toll was? <laughs> so <laughs> I continued my trend of just uh just like forgetting that George exists and has yep, a storyline. <laughs> so my death tally was, and I quote, one half penis? <laughs> <laughs> Question mark? Question mark. <laughs> Um, my death toll was George killed at least five people on his code team and spiritually he killed a lot more <laughs> with his fucking shitty attitude <laughs> okay let's <laughs> so thank you for the actual death count so it was five people and half a penis um, <laughs> which I think I would really like to note that it took me this watching this watch through to realize that the assault victim, mm-hmm. um, she not only bit off the man's penis, but I don't know how I missed this watching this so many times in the past. She swallowed it. Yeah. <laughs> they found because it, it's a protrusion they found it, like, in her throat. Yeah. Didn't they? yeah. Yeah. They found it like in her throat or in her stomach. And they were like, what is, you know, what is this? And they yeah. pull it out and no one can identify it. Which Even I though think we're is... surrounded by male surgeons. And Meredith, who's been on the job for literally three days, is like, oh, that's a severed penis. She's like, oh, yeah, that's a dick. Yeah. I've seen a lot of those. So I know my way around some dicks. <laughs> it's like clearly the implication between her immediate ability right. to identify a Identify dick. a severed penis. A severed dick. Um. Which yeah. was an interesting. Not our. We're gonna we're gonna delve into our medical fact, but one thing, our big medical fact. But I did think it was interesting to learn that teeth sever and do not slice. Mm-hmm. So if someone bites off your penis, you have to pee in a bag forever. Yeah, yeah. So that's a bummer. <laughs> so stop shoving your penis uh-huh. places no one wants it, mm-hmm. dudes. Seriously. Let's do best line. What's your oh, best yeah. line? There's some good ones here. There's some good so many good lines. I love the Yang's got a couple good one-liners <laughs> in this show. When they find the penis and Meredith's like, "Oh, that's a dick," and they're like, "Oh God," and Yang says, <laughs> "I love that moment." Um, and then when they're going to sew, when they find the rapist and they go to sew him up. Um, and it's clear that they're not going to reattach his penis. And <laughs> Bailey says, let's all take a moment to grieve. And then she pauses, not even for a full beat and says, clamp. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think it's, a, it's important to recognize, um, real recognize real. It is an operating room only of women. It's yep. only women yep. operating on this, on the, uh, the rapist. Or, it's know, wonderful. Uh, I loved the moment. My personal line of the week was also Yang. Uh, and this is probably going to be a thing forever. So I hope everyone's <laughs> like pretty ready for that. But um, Izzy, who we'll get to in a moment, but Izzy uh, has an interaction with an Asian woman. Um, who is speaking in a language that Izzy doesn't understand. Um, and so Izzy's trying to, there's no translator, which is absurd. I would like to point yeah. out that the university hospital in Seattle definitely has access to translators for this <laughs> exact situation. She calls, like, I think she literally pages Yang because Yang is, of course, Asian. Um, and Izzy's like, just totally flippantly she just goes i just i can't understand what she's saying because you just talk to her 
And Yang's face and the pause before she answers, I just want to bite into it. But then she just says really quickly, I grew up in Beverly Hills. The only Chinese I know is from a Mr. Chow's menu. Besides, I'm Korean. And then just walks away. Just a fucking mic drop moment. It's so good. Yeah, it's awesome. Who do we think is the chief resident of the episode? I frankly wanted to give it to Allison, who is our attempted rape victim, Mm -hmm. um, for biting off that asshole's dick. Um, And just like, she's just a boss in that episode. And I think that everybody treats her like a boss. You know, like there's just this palpable sense of respect for her, um, particularly from Meredith and Christina and and Derek as well, who sits by her bed all night long. Um, And if it, I mean, if it has to go to a doctor, I would give it to Gray probably for putting her neck out there with the baby who uh, has a a murmur. Um, And sort of for her with her sympathy toward the the intern who is really fucking pissed off at her. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really struggled with this question. And in my notes, I had like, I was like, mayor? question mark because of the baby line and i also said bailey who kept getting snacks without doing anything (laughs) for them but i once you mentioned allison the assault victim i was like oh a hundred percent it's got to go to allison yeah Um, and there's a really great moment when they're first operating on her meredith's in the room with uh derek Mm -hmm. and burke um and you pointed out that derek and burke are kind of they're kind of not not joking, like not in a bad way, but they're saying, oh, we have a warrior among us sort of a thing. Yeah. And then Meredith just speaks up and says her name is Allison, right? Yeah. Which is, um, it's just a great moment for, for Meredith and it's a great moment for the show to acknowledge that she's more than a victim. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think she's our chief resident. She's, yeah. and, and for a, a character who never speaks a line yeah you know i think that she's never got a, a thing she's such a, a developed character in a lot of ways which i really like yeah yeah the saddest death do we have a saddest death mm. no the coding which so so george is on the code team right and he's really mm-hmm. excited he thinks it's like the swat team of the right. surgical wing and again i have to ask what like farm did george attend for medical school that he didn't understand <laughs> the code team is obviously responding to people who are coding, who I I don't remember the statistic Yang points out, but it's like it's most ninety percent <laughs> of codes <laughs> end in death, <laughs> and they just need a doctor there to give the time of death. That's the only point of him, right? And he not only didn't know that, but was in fact surprised to find out this information. Yeah, and like and like whined like, how come no one told me that? <laughs> And Yang, to her credit, doesn't send him (laughs) coding in that moment. (laughs) Um, Okay, so not really any saddest deaths because we don't really know any of the people who die. So what about the 007 of the episode? 007. I have strong feelings about it. I think you're right. I think it has to go to Izzy. (laughs) Izzy really fucks it up, I'm going to be honest. (laughs) Okay, do you want to give some background for what happens with Izzy? Why is yeah. Izzy a crazy idiot this episode? So so the background here is that, which I don't think you got to in your summary, is that... Is <laughs> but that Yang rides a motorcycle. Rides a motorcycle, that's right. Couldn't forget that. Um, so when Izzy is, is trying to treat this woman who speaks a language that she does not know, um, she's going back and forth with her and trying to treat her and trying to treat her, and she just, they cannot communicate. And so eventually she turns her away and she says, you have to leave, you know, I can't help you. Anyway, it becomes clear that this woman has a daughter. Um, I, I guess I assume it's her daughter. I think that I'm not, I guess I'm not quite sure. Yeah, a younger um, woman with her. A younger woman, yeah. Who's, um, and she says, it's essentially the younger woman speaks a little bit of English. The older woman who was in the hospital does not. Um, but she's outside. She's sitting in the rain outside in sort of the alleyway behind the hospital. Um And she doesn't have a green card, so she can't. She's afraid to come into the hospital because she's worried about sort of getting caught and getting deported. Um, And Izzy tries to encourage her. She won't come inside. And so Izzy goes inside, steals medical supplies, (laughs) comes back outside, and she's got a large gash on her, her, like, all across her forehead. Um, And she sews her up. And she says, like, you can't tell anybody about this. 
because I could, I could get fired. So, um, come back in five days. I will take out your stitches. Um, and do not, do not tell anyone about this. And, um, and it's, it's like her third day on the job (laughs) and it's really fucking stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote in my notes that it takes one and a half episodes for Izzy to lose her medical license in the real world. So congratulations, Isabel Stevens, for being the worst at your job in a class that includes George O'Malley. Truly, George was a better doctor than her that day. Great work, yeah. And he killed half a dozen people. (laughs) He didn't even know the point of the team he was placed on for the day. And you were still worse, Izzy. Um, Yeah, and I, uh, I said... In, in sort of my notes to you that this this um, situation with Izzy really kind of made me think about um, your point about Meredith as this, uh, this site of empathy in the medical field. Like, what if mm-hmm. we practiced medicine differently? Mm-hmm. And I really felt like Izzy provides... like the perfect contrast to what they're maybe trying to do with Meredith in that she's she's totally Meredith unleashed like she's completely id she has no boundaries with her empathy Um, no filter and whereas Christina has no empathy certainly at this point (laughs) in her career right Uh she has no empathy and then you have Izzy who has too much empathy um, to the point that she's reckless. And then I think you're totally right that you have Meredith in the middle offering a third way, that there's there's yes. a way to do this job and retain your humanity and not be a fucking idiot. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So I'll give credit to Izzy for making me realize that, I guess. <laughs> God, she's the worst. So I guess that this then leads us into our medical fact of the week. Right. Yes. Um, which is a little bit, a little bit more serious than, than it was last episode when we were like, oh, a grand mal seizure. We don't know what that is. Read this book though. It's real good. (laughs) My, my big interest was how does deportation work in the real world with regards to emergency medical treatment? Because I was like, you know, would this woman actually be deported if she had gone in for emergency medical care? That seems crazy. That can't be accurate. Right. So I decided to look into it. um, And I found some really interesting shit about this. Um, So basically, federal law generally bar this is from a PBS NewsHour article. So federal law generally bars um, undocumented workers from being covered by Medicaid, but there's a part of the state's like federal benefits program for the poor um, that sets aside around two billion a year for emergency treatment okay. um, for a group of patients who mostly comprise undocumented workers. Um, and most of it is used for when women show up at an emergency room and deliver, Mm -hmm. deliver children. Right. Um, this is not like this varies state, state by state, like the amount of money allocated varies state by state. And also like the definition of what emergency care is, um, it differs across states. So in New York, emergency Medicaid could be used to provide like chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it in New York, California, North Carolina, it could include like outpatient dialysis, right? Okay. But in some states, it could literally just be like catastrophic, you know, accident care, right? That uh, that emergency it. services aren't dialysis that that wouldn't be considered Mm, an mm. emergency service sure we'll get to that in a second um what i found really fascinating so right now in the united states we have of course the affordable care act or obamacare Mm -hmm. and it's it's a great program right like i'm a democrat rock on obamacare i'm on it it's awesome yeah um but the aca one of the many concessions that were made to make the um affordable care act tenable to all of Congress um, and not just Democrats Mm -hmm. um, is that undocumented immigrants were excluded from insurance provisions of the ACA. Meaning um, even if you could afford to pay for insurance on the exchange, 
if you are an undocumented worker, you still you're, can't apply for it. You're not eligible. Nope. Even if you have so you the have means. To, you so have you to have to, to prove citizenship insurance. in order to get and it. And even when you prove citizenship, permanent legal immigrants have to wait five years to become eligible for both Medicaid, which is just straight up government assistance, uh-huh. and the ACA, which is subsidized you have to be plans. you have to be a legal legal citizen for 5 years before, before you can before you can qualify. qualify even if you have the means to pay right so even, oh my god so we're talking about people who could pay for plans on the exchange but right. because part of those plans um is subsidized by the government and conservatives Etc. Didn't want, don't want to be um, subsidizing healthcare for undocumented huh. workers. They're totally barred, and they have the citizenship rule of waiting five years. So wow. it gets it gets worse. It gets a lot worse. So let's oh, let's God. get ready for this. Okay. Um, so uh, first of all, eighty percent of undocumented migrants um, are Hispanic in the U.S. In 2012, the Department of Health and Human Services reported that Hispanics are more likely to be uninsured, they're more likely to have chronic diseases, and they're less likely to receive preventative care compared with the general population, (laughs) which means that they're more likely to rely on emergency Medicaid, right? Because we're not providing for them on a a day-to-day basis. Um, So there's this thing called medical deportations. This is real. This That's is a, thing? a real thing. This one is from the New York Times. It involves a man who was deported by a hospital, Martin Memorial, um, because he was in an accident in Florida. He was hit by a drunk driver, so he was not at fault, um, but he had life life endangering injuries he received Mm -hmm. medical care but he needed ongoing medical care so essentially um he was comatose and needed assistance beyond just his time being saved in the operating room right so the hospital not surprising the hospital deported him back to his home country okay a man who could not care for himself in any respect whatsoever, he had woken up from his coma now at this point, but could not take care of himself, deported him, literally, like, rented a plane, chartered a plane, and flew this guy back to his home country because they didn't want to be responsible for any more of his health care. And this is not a completely unusual event um, in a Tucson hospital. Um, they tried to fly an American citizen. She was born in the United States, but her parents were um, undocumented. Um, they tried to fly her back to Mexico. Um, <laughs> and the police were summoned by a lawyer to the airport to literally block the flight. Um, in a case that outraged oh, Phoenix's Hispanic community, St. Joseph's Hospital planned to send a comatose, uninsured legal immigrant back to Honduras until community leaders got lawyers involved. Um, what the so, fuck? So, yeah, that is, a, that is a real thing that happens um, because Medicaid doesn't cover long-term care for undocumented workers. Um, so they try to repatriate seriously injured or ill immigrants because they can't find nursing homes oftentimes who will who'll take care of who'll them. Who will take them. Um, and then just last year... A woman in Houston, as reported by the Houston Chronicle, this is my last depressing bit. Okay. Um, a, a woman in Houston was arrested at the gynecologist. She was there with her daughter. She was arrested by a gynecologist um, because she presented a fake identification card during a visit to her doctor for preventative care. And the office called the police um, when they realized that uh, her ID didn't check out. Um, and it just set off this this whole huge issue, of course. That this woman was Holy arrested for, for going to the doctor. To, for fucking preventative care. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Christ. So, as it turns out, Gray's was not being overly dramatic for a change. Yeah. This is real. That could have really happened. Yeah, that could have really happened. Or at least it's a reasonable fear for somebody who's undocumented. 
certainly and um and that and that is often the case that undocumented um workers will not go in unless the situation is totally dire oh god creating like further drag on our system of course because it's expensive to save a life in the emergency room right 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 so yeah wow boom medical fact that's our medical fact of the week sorry america healthcare has (laughs) continued to disappoint the masses thought maybe we could kind of end on this note <laughs> so <laughs> meredith gray is trying to find roommates <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and it's something that almost entirely makes up for her shoes monologue <laughs> her like <laughs> i'm gonna call it the meredith gray challenger test for yeah. roommate potential she asks prospective roommates where were you when the challenger exploded? Yeah, yeah. And when one potential roommate says, I was in kindergarten, I she think. goes, exactly. <laughs> Just non-verbally dismisses the woman. Yes. It's incredible. It speaks to her level of sadness. <laughs> That's what she refers to. <laughs> Not like... like what was your first concert or something it was like right right like where were you when thriller came out (laughs) where were you during this national (laughs) trend yeah yeah which i think that you said like the equivalent of today the treza 9-11 test for roommate potential where were you when 9-11 happened and if this potential roommate said oh i was in kindergarten i think i'd be like okay well we're done here have a great (laughs) life Right, right. I hope you have a lot of fun when you reach drinking age. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that's a perfect equivalent. I think that's a point, per- and particularly for like our age, right? Like, I think that we're the we're the uh, right on that sort of threshold of like when we're allowed to sort of take ownership over that exactly. experience, exactly. Um, which is true. Like many of my students, I'm a teacher, and what, many of my students were not alive when 9/11 happened. Yeah. Oh, that's well, they're ninth graders crazy. now, so they were born in 2001. Wow. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. They told me that harrowing. the other day. We were we were reading a book that was written in 2001, and it's the satirical piece. And I said, well, you know, this was written in 2001, and it was about technology. And they were like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah. How old were you in 2001? <laughs> they were like, not. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't any age. <laughs> and I had like a, I, exactly how she feels. Exact, I, I felt the exact sentiment that Meredith expresses in that moment of like never mind okay we're good yeah I uh yeah my brother my brother is seven years younger than me and he was in kindergarten when he was actually in kindergarten when 9-11 happened and that's immediately what I thought of I was like yeah that seems fair I would never want a roommate my brother's age so um yeah he was actually on the cover of our local newspaper uh really praying after 9-11 yeah, he went to wow. a Christian school. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> they had to, the little girl sitting next to him was, was also praying. They're all, you know, heads down. It's a really adorable picture. We have it framed in our house. Sure. But the girl was wearing a t- dress. And, and the newspaper had to, like, blur out. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> Mars and otherwise really endearing picture was like 2001 Photoshop. Oh no! Oh, that's funny. So on that note, I think uh, that pretty well wraps up season one, episode season two. one, episode two. The first cut is the deepest. Yeah. Cue Cheryl Crow. Oh, you bet your ass. Cue Cheryl Crow. all right well uh thanks so much for listening to us and um we hope you enjoyed this episode and we will be back for episode three in a relatively short time (laughs) in an ambiguous window of days yes Yes. (laughs) all right goodbye everybody bye